For the rest of you, I would encourage you to open up to the Gospel of Matthew. We are in the New Testament, the very first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be in chapter 5. And if you're visiting us, feel free to take one of the Bibles that you find under the seats around you. Uh, you can open up in there. You can cheat. Look at the table of contents. We're at the, we're at the Gospel of Matthew. And if you're not used to handling a Bible, that's okay. Uh, Matthew is the very first book of the New Testament. Those big numbers are going to be the chapters, the small numbers of the verses. We're going to be in big number 5. That's chapter 5. And we're going to be looking really only at one verse today, but I'm going to read a handful of verses in context, beginning with verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Amen. For those of you who know me, you know that I love big doorstop epic fantasy novels. I love reading books about the clashes of kings and the clash of kingdoms. Many of you are familiar perhaps with Lord of the Rings. It's an all-time classic. There's many more that go out from that, many of which are inspired by Tolkien in his own writings. But I love it because as you get absorbed into these, these fantasy novels, what you realize is that fantasy is so often rooted in reality. It's explorations of the human condition. It's explorations of, of goodness and righteousness versus evil and and treachery, of life versus death, of light versus darkness. Oftentimes, as you're reading, you, you wonder, how is it that the good kingdom is going to win in the end? And, and how is it that this bad, evil, dark kingdom 
that seems to be overwhelming everything in the end is going to lose. I'm also one of those guys that Wikipedia is the plot of every book I read before I read it. I do the same thing with movies. I think it's a very Christian thing to do. It helps us to read any part of the Bible in the middle because we already know the end. And in knowing the end, we can know how it's all going to turn out. Well, Matthew chapter 5, really the whole gospel of Matthew is all about a kingdom. It is all about the clash of kingdoms. And it's about a king. And just as in many of the books that I read, every kingdom takes on the shape and the identity and the culture and the personality and the values of its king, so it is in our own world. Whether it be a fallen kingdom torn away from Adam in the garden, handed over to Satan, the ruler of this world, or whether it be the kingdom of Christ, Growing and spreading as if it were yeast in the world until the glory of God fills the earth. It's a clash of kingdoms. It's all about a king and about those who are in his kingdom as subjects and how they begin to adopt the, the shape and the personality and the, and the culture of his kingdom as they begin to look a little bit more like the king. The Sermon on the Mount here, beginning in chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7, is really all about Christ's kingdom, about the culture of the kingdom, about the character of the kingdom, about what it is that we are meant to be by the grace of God as those who have been saved by Christ and now have enjoyed the many blessings and the benefits of His covenant of grace. I think there's a, a bit of confusion often that follows these handful of verses, though. When we think about Beatitudes, how, many, how often have we seen it where it's a, it's a B with a dash and then a capital A, attitudes? It's the things that we need to do. It's the things that we need to be. It's the things that are commendable. And how often have we come perhaps to these Beatitudes and we looked at the various list of qualities and we've been confronted with the reality that this is not me, even on my best days. How are we to think about these? I want to spend the next seven or eight weeks or so just taking one Beatitude at a time. We're only going to look at one today. And we'll take one every week following just over the course of the next couple of months, and then in March or April, Lord willing, we're going to begin marching our way through the book of Revelation. And we're going to see the victorious king and his victorious kingdom at the end of the age. But for now, we want to build some kingdom categories. And we're going to spend a few weeks considering what those are. Let me just give you a little bit of context for where we are. Notice... <clears throat> Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him. Verse 2, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. 
and saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what we are going to be talking about. It's the beginning of a sermon on the mount, as it's famously called. It goes all the way through the end of chapter 7. And at the end of chapter 7, we have a phrase that's going to be repeated time and again. If you want to look there, it's verse 28 in chapter 7. When he finished these sayings. Five times we see this phrase over the course of the whole gospel. And every single phrase appears at the end of, a, of an extended amount of teaching from Jesus. It concludes a, a section of teaching, whether it is to Jesus to his disciples or, or Jesus to the crowds. And all five sections concluded with this statement. When he finished these sayings, all five of these sections deal with the exact same thing. They deal ultimately with the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? What is it like? Who is the king? And what we see, for instance, even in this passage, in its context, is a kingdom theme. Just keep your hand there in chapter 5. Look up a few verses in chapter 4. Verse 23, we see, first of all, that the gospel is about God's kingdom. That Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Just a little ways up, again in verse 17. From that time, that is from the time of John the Baptist's death, Jesus began to preach. Saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see a couple of things in these, in these verses. We see there in verse 17 that God's kingdom is at the heart of the gospel. And in verse 23, the gospel is all about God's kingdom. And that's really important for us to understand because it's setting up what is ultimately the big idea of the Sermon on the Mount, which is really all about the kingdom. What does it mean to belong to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ? Well, we want to consider not only as we head into the Beatitudes, this kingdom theme, but we also want to consider the king and his kingdom. You see that phrase there at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, that's another important phrase, it's going to be repeated one other time in chapter 16, verse 21, and that phrase, from that time, serves as kind of headings for major sections. There's three major sections in, gospel, in Matthew's gospel, two headings dividing up three sections, and each one of these sections focuses entirely on Jesus. Beginning at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 16, right before the first mention of that phrase, we see Christ and his kingly identity. We see his kingly identity. That he is the yes and amen to all of God's promises, the fulfillment of the, of the law and the prophets. That he is the long-awaited king that has appeared. And in that first handful of verses, Matthew is, to, is concerned to show that he's the one that we have been waiting for in light of all of the Old Testament anticipation. But they can be getting right there in chapter 4, verse 17, going all the way to the middle of chapter 16, verse 20, we see both in his teaching and his works, we see Jesus' kingly authority. They say well, he is teaching with an authority that we have never seen, that he is casting out demons, he is curing disease, and we're going to see that he even is able to overcome death itself in the raising of Lazarus. So we see not only his kingly identity, who is this king? 
but we also see his kingly authority. And then in the third and final section from chapter 16, verse 21, all the way to the end of the book, we see his kingly victory. As he goes all the way to the cross, is raised from the dead and then commissions his church to the ends of the end of the world. That all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We win. So we see the victory of the king. Why am I going to these great lengths to talk about all of this? First of all, it's to point out that everything in the, in the gospel of Matthew, including the Sermon on the Mount, including the Beatitudes, is all about the kingdom of God. And at the center of the kingdom of God is a king, and that king is the King Jesus. He's our Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus is at the heart of all of it. And if we go through the Beatitudes as if Jesus is in the heart of the Beatitudes, we're going to miss the heart of the Beatitudes. Christ is at the center of it. That it's only possible as we read these, and this is what I want you to get, that as we read about being poor in spirit and mourning and meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, these are not white-knuckled, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap qualities that we are meant to naturally produce in ourselves. These kinds of things are only possible for those who have received His redeeming grace, who submit to His kingly authority, and who now eagerly await His victorious return. And if we miss that, if those categories aren't operating in the background like an operating system, then our computers are going to crash when we get to the Beatitudes. Daniel, did I do okay with that? Okay. You can correct me after the sermon. Why is all of this important? Because, beloved, when we come to a list of things like this, we can be tempted to read them all as law with no gospel. All kinds of guilt, but no hope. That underneath all of these, I hope to prove to you, not just today, but in the coming weeks, are not merely demands being made, but they are the very blessings and the benefits of the new covenant, of the covenant of grace that are given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, and that living these things out are not only possible because of His grace, but by, the, by virtue of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are able to do it. It is all by His grace. As we have been united to Christ, it's His grace. So let's head into the exposition. I just want to consider verse 3 today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is meant by that word blessed? You can see it as you just scan through the paragraph that it's repeated over and over and over again. This attitude or this, this word beatitude, well, it's Latin derived. It just means blessing or blessedness. But when we get to the New Testament, there are two words in the Greek for bless. And I'm not getting into the weeds, but one of them means to praise or it's, it's something that is praiseworthy. And so we might consider, for instance, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Same word. That God is blessed. He is worthy of praise. He's worthy of our devotion and our worship. He's worthy of those things. And so on the one hand, the word that is repeated here over and over can mean to praise something. 
Oh, but beloved, I don't think that we can take Jesus is meaning that here. What we see here is, is Jesus is not ultimately praising the poor. He's not praising the mourners. He's not praising the peacemakers. Oh, these are the kinds of people that God must ultimately be happy with. These are the really good Christians. These are the ones that he's certainly going to invite into his heaven. But I think that's often how we assume this, don't we? That we read this list and we consider them as how-to-be attitudes. And there's a certain rightness to that, but when we think about that how-to-be-ism of, of these handful of, of beatitudes, then, then we can tend to miss the gospel grace underneath. It can tend to be like, you remember, some of you are old enough to remember those WWJD bracelets. We all wore them. What would Jesus do? That's a good question, by the way. That's not a bad thing. We should be considering that. He's a fulfillment of God's very law. God's law is good and holy and right. We should consider what Jesus did. We should aim to emulate him all the while recognizing that we are sinners in need of his grace. And yet at the same time, it became almost like a moralistic slogan, divorced from the gospel altogether. And we got to be careful not to treat the Beatitudes in the same way. The Beatitudes are not a WWJD bracelet to remind us of of what we're meant to be if we work hard enough and are diligent enough. No, they are meant to be reminders to us of God's great grace to us and the covenant of grace through Christ. So the way that we should understand it, I told you the first way to understand that word is, is praise, something that's praiseworthy. The second way to understand it is this way, that to be blessed is to convey the idea of happiness or peace. It's to be happy. It conveys the idea of someone who enjoys God's favor or peace. Just put your finger here in Matthew chapter 5. I want you to turn all the way to your left to Psalm chapter 1. You should be familiar with the way that this word is used, the concept throughout the Bible. Psalm chapter 1. The very first psalm. It's what it says, same attitude here, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We see the character of the blessed man there in the first couple of verses, but what is the nature of his blessing? It's twofold. We see it first of all in verse 3, that he is like a tree that is planted by streams of water. He is immovable. He is not double-minded. He will not be swayed by this world or by sin in the end because he is rooted in the word of God and the Son of God. But also, verse 6, why is he blessed? Because the Lord knows him. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, our destiny as those who are in Christ by faith is to know Christ, is to know God as we are known. The blessing of the blessed man, the blessed life, the happy life, it's to not only be firmly rooted and planted in the gospel, but it is to be known by God. But look also at Psalm 32. This was supposed to be our assurance of pardon, and I just blamed on it earlier in our service, but I'm glad we get to circle back to it. Psalm 32, same concept. Listen to this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose sphere there's no deceit. Now, I want you to understand, the blessed man is not the man who has no transgression, who has no sin, who has no iniquity. The blessed and the happy life is the one who knows himself to be a sinner and yet has been forgiven and covered, the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's the blessed life in this life. To know God in this way, to, to know His grace in this way, to know the forgiveness of, of Christ in covenant in this way. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. Let's keep all of those things in our minds as categories as we come back again to the Beatitudes. Because when we get there, what we find is King Jesus speaking with a royal authority and He's and as he's speaking, what he's doing is he's conveying the spiritual blessings of his covenant to the citizens of his kingdom. And you really need to get that. It's not a to-do list that if you do these things, you will be blessed. They are blessings and benefits that are found in Christ through the covenant of grace, the new covenant, alone to believers alone, that those who have been so blessed in Christ are blessed because they have these things. They possess these things because God is producing these things. The blessing is not in the proving. The proving is in the blessing, that we are those who have been blessed. Follow along with me. I think there's three necessary assumptions before we consider what we mean by poor in spirit and the rest. There's three necessary assumptions that we need to consider as we come to the Beatitudes. And I'm not going to spend this much time every week doing this much heavy lifting on the front end. Right? I'm trying to build some categories that are going to be helpful for us on a week-by-week -week basis to help us think, right? Some, some glasses, some lenses to put on so that as we look at it, we might be able to consider it in the most helpful way through the lenses of the gospel. The first necessary assumption is this, every single Christian is blessed in this way. This is not a list of varsity Christianity. There are some varsity Christians, some of the really great Christians who are blessed in this way, who manifest these things, and then there are the junior varsity Christians, the immature Christians, who maybe one day, if they wait long enough and work hard enough, then they'll attain to this, this kind of higher spiritual life. That is not the way that we need to read the Beatitudes. Every Christian who is in Christ is blessed in this way. Secondly, Every single Christian is blessed with every single quality that we find here by God's grace. Now, is it going to be the case that some characteristics are going to be more evident in some of us than others? Well, that's definitely going to be the case. When I hang out with any one of you, whether it be my wife or whether it be George Stone or, or whether it be any one of you, I'm going to hang out and there's going to be ways in, in each one of our lives that perhaps some of these are going to be more clearly manifested than others. But that does not mean that some of them are only manifested in George, and some of them are only manifested in Kathy, and some of them are only manifested in me. And in each one of our lives, those things are at the expense of the others. That's not how it works. That what we see here in these handful of verses, that they're not like spiritual gifts. You have one kind of gift, and I have another kind of gift. 
And that together, when you put us together, you know, we kind of Voltron into the church to bless one another. All the various parts coming together in one body. No, it is the case that all those who are in Christ are blessed in every single way that we see here, without exception. It's true of every one of you. Number three, every single quality that we see here is spiritual and it is not physical or natural, to put it better. They're not personality traits. They're not qualities that anybody can develop. It's not anybody can pick up a a book or go to a a conference or go to any one of these things, go to a, a retreat on a desert island one day and then walk out in their own strength and their own power by virtue of their own study or their own meditation or their own discipline or whatever it may be and look this way. Now, it doesn't mean that we might not see things that we think resemble this in the world, but you have to understand this. Everything that we see here is spiritual at root and not natural. That they are dispositions that are produced only in Christians by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that way, what it means is that it distinguishes Christians, those who are in Christ, from non-Christians, the rest of the world and those who are still dead in Adam, though we hope will come to be alive in Christ one day. And so when we consider these, we look at it and we think, not only is the church meant to be like this, but in the power of Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be like this because of His grace. And so they are spiritual. Here's why this is important. Because if we conceive of any of these things, what it means to be poor in spirit, what it means to mourn, what it means to be meek, and we conceive of them in any way that can be defined in natural terms, in any way that we go, you know, I think my non-Christian neighbor who's really nice and kind and I get along with really well, I think he's just like this, then we don't understand the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are those qualities manifested by the citizens of Christ's kingdom and the citizens of Christ's kingdom are those who have been brought in by faith in Christ into his covenant, his covenant of grace. So what should we consider in all of that, all of this kind of pre-work that we're doing? Four applications come to mind. Number one, when we consider all of these, oh, beloved, let's rest in Christ's righteousness. Let's rest in Christ's righteousness. Let's not look to these things and, and go, oh, I've got to be a little bit more poor in spirit. Oh, I've got to mourn a little bit more. I've got to be, got to be a little bit more hungry and, and thirsty for righteousness. Now, 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 listen, all of that may be true, but let's not think about any one of those things to say, I've got to be those things in order to be saved, or perhaps for some of us, I've got to be those things in order to stay saved. Oh, friend, we want to rest in Christ's righteousness. His work of salvation is finished and we add nothing to it. There is no amount of being poor in spirit. There is no amount of mourning. There is no amount of making of peace. There is no amount of mercy that you can show to others that will add one whit to Christ's finished work. Amen? Let's rest in Christ's righteousness. Secondly, let's believe Jesus' words. Let's believe that this is really what the blessed life looks like because if we think about it, so many of these are going to be contrary to our own instincts, aren't they? And if I were the devil, 
what I would love to do is slide up right next to you and begin whispering in your ear and going, you really think that that's what the victorious, winning Christian life looks like? Let's believe Jesus' words. Let's go to his word and go, Jesus is right. And let's recalibrate ourselves by it over and over and over again by his grace. Thirdly, I think as we work through the Beatitudes together, we need to be able to redefine the blessed life, don't we? You know, so many of us, you go, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm just so blessed. Right? And when we apply the idea of blessing to our own lives, most often we apply it to those things that are going really well or, or material blessing or, or I got a raise at work. And listen, all of that's great. We count all of those as God's blessing. What have you received that God has not given you? It's all from his hand. I teach a British literature class on Mondays and Fridays. And every single time we come to class, I just tell them, listen, we call it say-sos. Right, it's just a biblical phrase, say so. You deserve death because of sin. That means everything in your life, 15-year-olds, everything in your life that is not death for sin is God's kindness to you. It's His kindness to you either to help you endure or if you're not yet a Christian, to, to bring you to repentance. So tell me in what ways God has been kind to you. And they recount their blessings for the week or the weekend or whatever it may be. And, and more often than not, it's good things. And that's right. But I wonder if sometimes we limit the way that we think about the blessed life only to those things. We think only about the good things that God has given us. The prosperous things that God has given us. But we don't often think about the blessed life as the bad things that God will turn to good, about the hard things that God will use to fashion us and shape us, or even beyond that, about the great work of regeneration and salvation that he has done in our lives, evidenced by these things. And so as we go through it, I want to recalibrate and redefine for some of us what the blessed life is, and then fourthly and finally, as we dive into verse 3, Let's ask God to grow every member of our church in every quality that we see here by his grace. Can we do that together? Just as you pray for the members of the church, as you open up your membership directory, as you go online to the, to the app and you look at the names, as you go name by name, you might just pray, God, I pray that you would, that you would help Mike Campbell be poor in spirit and to mourn and and to be meek and to hunger and thirst for righteousness, may all of these qualities be his. We might pray that for one another. I wonder if all of us prayed that for every member of this church, what the culture of our church would look like in weeks, months, or years from now. I think it'd be pretty amazing what God would do if we were to ask big prayers like that. Uncomfortable prayers, but good big prayers. With all those things in mind, let's consider that first blessing, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that there is a spiritual logic here. It's obvious that the poor in spirit comes first because I aim to prove to you that there is no entry into the kingdom of God apart from it. It must come first. Enjoyment of all of the blessings that follow come through this poverty of spirit. And so logically, 
It's only natural that it comes first. Consider Isaiah 57, 15. It was our call to worship at the beginning of our time together. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and a lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. When we get into the Old Testament, the poor, as we see here, the poor in spirit, it's almost a technical term for a certain group of people. Just hang with me for a minute. Psalm 34, 6 speaks of, quote, this poor man who cries out to the Lord and was saved. Psalm 40, the psalmist refers to himself, as we saw earlier, as poor and needy. And he asks the Lord to remember him and to deliver him. Psalm 69, they are the captives that seek God because he is their only refuge. He is their only salvation. Just as we see in Isaiah 61, a passage that Jesus later on quotes in Luke chapter 4, that Jesus came to declare good news to the poor. He didn't say, I'm coming to give you a million dollars if you sow enough to the church budget. It is those who are held captive by sin. It's those who are in bondage. I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives. I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. Well, then who are the poor? The poor are those who, when they behold God in all of his glory and all of his holiness and all of his righteousness is revealed in his law, are reduced to absolute nothingness. They know themselves to be nothing in light of God. Consider Gideon. The angel of the Lord appears to him, and he says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And you remember how Gideon responds? He doesn't go, Yeah, you bet he is. Let's go crush it. What does he say? Gideon says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. My father's house is the least in Manasseh. Manasseh is the, is the weakest among Israel, and I am the least in my father's house. What hope do I have to accomplish your great purposes? David said something similar, 2 Samuel chapter 7, right after God made a covenant with him and his household. He says, who am I? Who am I, O Lord? What is my house that you have brought me this far? What have we done to deserve something like this? Answer, nothing. Who am I? Isaiah, in that famous chapter, Isaiah 6, where he sees the risen Christ in his throne room. Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King. Later on, the Apostle John says that Isaiah saw Jesus, the Lord of hosts. Remember what Peter said when Christ calls them to be his disciples? He climbs into the boat. He tells them to pull up all those fish from the other side of the boat. And despite all of their wisdom and expertise as fishermen, they didn't know what they were doing. Jesus gives one command. They got more fish coming in than they know what to do with. You remember what Peter says when he realizes who's standing in his boat and decides to give up everything to follow him? What does he say? Oh, depart from me. I am a sinful man, full of doubt and weakness and fear and pride and ignorance. He saw Christ in all of his righteousness with the eyes of faith. Depart from me, 
So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I can't put it any better than the doctor. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, this then is what is meant by being poor in spirit. It means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. That is what it means, he says, to be poor in spirit. Beloved, apart from Christ and his covenant of grace in which we are sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ, apart from Christ, this is how the poor in spirit see themselves. Without Christ, I'm the least. Without Christ, who am I? Without Christ, woe is me. Oh, without Christ, depart from me. I am a sinner. How is it that a man becomes poor like this? And the answer is that he cannot do it himself. This kind of poverty is a grace from God by giving him a new heart by the power of his Holy Spirit. And as the Spirit accompanies his law, his law condemns us and crushes us and convicts us and shows us our need for a mediator. We need someone to stand in the gap for us between, between us and an all-holy God because we have no chance otherwise. And then when God leads us to see our real condition, when he sees us to recognize it to be so that we have fallen woefully short of the glory of God, then a poverty of spirit is born by his Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we see in that moment that our only hope is in the Lord. All pride is gone. All self-righteousness is burned away. All haughtiness is gone in that moment. And our only plea, isn't it? Our only plea when the Holy Spirit, by the law of God, makes us poor in spirit is to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. I want to conclude our time with a scriptural illustration of verse 3 of what it means to be poor in spirit, that it's only these who have been brought low by the Spirit of God, by the law of God, to see their need for the Son of God, that they might receive His righteousness by faith imputed to them and inherit as their own the very kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. What does it look like? Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke. So if you're new to handling a Bible, only two books away, and I want you to go to Luke 18, familiar passage, Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18, or rather, beginning in verse 9. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Hear now the word of the Lord. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I want to make four observations from this paragraph. I want to observe, first of all, the proof of a haughty spirit. What's its evidence? The proof of a haughty spirit. H-A-U-G-H-T-Y. It's an old word. We don't use it very often, but we should. It's a little bit more descriptive than a proud spirit, though that would be more simple. A haughty spirit is a proud spirit, but a haughty spirit is a spirit that looks down on other people. And I want to consider, first of all, the proof of a haughty spirit. I want to consider, secondly, the peril of a haughty spirit. Thirdly, let's consider the the performance, the outward performance of a haughty spirit. And then fourthly, consider the poverty of a haughty spirit. In all four of these, the proof, peril, performance, and poverty of of a haughty spirit, we want to consider from the opposite side what it means to be poor in spirit. From a negative example to a positive example. Consider that first. Look at the proof of a haughty spirit. Notice that Jesus tells us the main idea of his parable all the way in verse 9. What's it all about? He's speaking it in verse 9 to those who trusted in themselves. And that was the Pharisees' confidence. We see that in verse 11. He says, thank God I am not like other men. His confidence was totally in himself. And notice, even as he considered himself, he considers himself in his own righteousness in light Not of God in all of his holiness, but in light of that dirty tax collector standing off at a distance. Not just, thank God that I'm not like other men, but thank God that I'm not like that one especially, is what he says. I have a Honda Civic with 170,000 miles on it right now. We have a Honda Odyssey with five bazillion miles on it. Which basically means that there's always a check engine light for something all the time. And those check engine lights in my car, much like your car, are indicators that there's something not quite right under the hood. And we see here in this paragraph a flashing dash light. There is something broken in this Pharisee that we need to give consideration to and That flashlight is the despising of others. And so practically speaking, I'd have you consider this, that the despising of others, as we see in this paragraph, is always, always, always the companion of self-righteousness. The despising of others is always the companion of self-righteousness. One of my favorite commentators, Dale Ralph Davis, said this, If you are despising others, he says, It is likely that you trust in your own righteousness. And when you do that, you also must despise others because if they are equal to you, you cannot regard yourself as quite so righteous. And so in other words, it is really important 
If your righteousness is dependent in any way upon being better than anyone else for you to keep them lower than you, or you will undermine your own righteousness. So whatever you need to do to demean or deride or despise, as we see here, is what self-righteous people do. And so if we're going to reverse engineer it, work backwards, if we have a, a kind of light, maybe we don't know exactly what's going on behind the hood in our own lives, we need to consider, is there anyone in my life that I despise? Is there anyone that I see regularly, they're on the news or over the course of my, of my workday or, or even in my own past that when I consider those people, I go, ugh, thank God I'm not like them. That is the proof, not of a poor spirit, but of a haughty spirit. But we see something else. Notice, just by implication, the peril of a haughty spirit. I imagine that most of us in here would look at the Pharisee and we'd say, yeah, I hate that guy. I ain't that guy. I don't want to be that guy. That guy's the bad guy. We think, we think that way and we don't want to identify ourselves with him. And there's something that's, that's right because in the parable, he's the negative example. And so we don't want to be that guy, but you say, no, 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 not me. I hate self-righteousness. Not only that, I hate self-righteous people. A young man that I knew some years ago, he was in the church and serving, and, and he had witnessed what he considered to be among the leadership of the church, some self-righteousness in the way that, that they had treated someone else who had come into the church and was a sinner. And perhaps that was the case or not. I don't, I don't know. I wasn't there. But at least it was for him. That's what he considered. And and so this was, in his mind, grounds enough for him to, to leave the church, and in leaving the church was really critical of, of the leaders and, and some of the members of the church. And, and as he and I discussed it, I just warned him. I said, it may very well be the case that you are seeing very real self-righteousness in the leaders of this church, but you need to guard your heart lest you become self-righteous about the self-righteous. That's the peril of a haughty spirit is we don't often even see it because the things that we would consider ourselves to be against and better than are things that are worthy of being against and better than. And so I wonder, is it possible to be so self-righteous that we despise the self-righteous? Can we put ourselves in the place of this public and this tax collector in this paragraph? And will we say, thank you, God, that I'm not like that self-righteous Pharisee? Notice what the poor in spirit says. Not, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. That's our starting point all the time. That's the peril of a haughty spirit. It's hard to see. It's like CO2 in our house. It's hard to see. It's scentless. It's odorless. It's invisible. And you don't even know it's there until you're dead. That's why we need to install CO2 sensors in our homes. Isn't that right? The Holy Spirit working through the scriptures is like a CO2 sensor to our own self-righteousness. Because it's deadly. Thirdly, consider the performance of a haughty spirit. The Pharisee in verse 11, he's self-reliant and self-righteous, but notice the sphere or the exercise of his self-righteousness, it expresses itself even in prayer. 
in his tithing, in his, in his giving. That's a humbling reality, isn't it? That a haughty spirit can manifest itself even in the holiest of exercises. Is it possible for us to gather as a church and to have our praying and our singing and our preaching, though it might be full of God's word and and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it possible for our praying and our singing and our preaching to reek of the stench of self-righteousness? Thank God we're not like that other church. Or do we pray and sing and preach and receive God's word as those who say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Indeed, you have been in Christ. Is that our starting point? Finally, consider the poverty of a haughty spirit. And I use the word poverty as an irony because the Pharisee considers himself rich, rich in righteousness. But by the end of the parable, you notice that he's impoverished, spiritually speaking. He says, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified, righteous. That's really the heart of the, of the parable. Remember, all the way up in verse 9. Some trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And so what Jesus is wanting to do is recalibrate and reframe what righteousness is and where it comes from. That the only way that a tax collector could be righteous by what he's doing is that he's received as a gift of grace a righteousness that doesn't belong to himself. And by that righteousness, he is justified. Verse 14, but he says, he goes down justified rather than the other. The one that knows himself as being unworthy of justification is justified. The one who thinks himself justified is not. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. One day, the poor in spirit, who has right now been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, who has had lavished on him and her the very riches of grace, will come into full possession of the riches of the kingdom of Christ when he returns. Those who are poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. But those who would be haughty in spirit, that consider themselves rich in righteousness apart from Christ, they will find themselves impoverished in that day. Friend, if you're a visitor with us and you're one here investigating Christian things, if there's anything that you would walk away knowing from what you've heard sung and prayed or what you've heard me say, it's this. That there is not a Christian in this room, maybe contrary to your own experience or people that you've confronted, there's not a Christian in this room that believes that they're good enough to get to heaven. Every single one of us have been brought by God's grace to see that we are sinners, deserving of his condemnation because of our sin, because of our lovelessness and our prayerlessness, because of our idolatry, the things that we put all of our hopes and dreams and stake our whole life on that isn't God himself. For all of these ways, we're guilty and so are you. And you deserve hell just like we do. But God in his mercy brought all of us to see just as this tax collector saw that the only way that we can be righteous before God is if God is merciful to us. And here's the offer. 
God extends his mercy to you even this very afternoon that you don't have to depend on your own righteousness. You don't have to meet God halfway. You don't have to boast in all the good things that you've done along the way, be it your tithing or your praying or your voting or your goodness or whatever it may be. You have to boast in any of that if you would just be brought to see God in all of his holiness, of Christ in all of his goodness, to be brought so low to just pray this prayer God, would you be merciful to me in Christ? Would you give me righteousness that I don't have in Christ? Would you be willing to give me the gift of eternal life, a gift of eternity with you, a gift of heaven, of a prosperous, rich future with Christ? And he offers it to you as a gift. You have no money to buy. <laughs> you're, you're poor. Christ has already purchased it and he invites you to come and eat. Oh, friend, would you do that? Please trust in Christ. Stop, don't trust in yourself. You've seen the end of those who trust in themselves that those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Oh, friend, humble yourself before King Jesus today. And he will save you. He'll do it. But to those of us who are aiming by God's grace to follow Christ, we should consider now by a negative example what it means to be poor in spirit. We see that the proof of a haughty spirit is self-reliance and self-righteousness, whereas the proof of a poor spirit is the absence of self-reliance, the absence of self-righteousness. The peril of a haughty spirit is to be proud, even of our humility, judging ourselves always against others and not God, but the poor in spirit judges himself only and always against God. Be merciful to me. The performance of a haughty spirit and all of the praying and the giving and and the serving is self-centered, all about us, all about our glory, but the poor in spirit have been stripped of any illusion of self-glory, and they are concerned above all with God's glory. That if we were to tease out this little prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner, I imagine that it would sound something like Arthur Bennett's prayer in the Valley of Vision, that little book of collection of Puritan prayers. It goes like this. No day of my life has passed that has not proven me guilty in thy sight. Prayers have been uttered from a prayerless heart. Praise has been often praiseless sound, clanging cymbals. My best services are filthy rags, but in my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are still stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. What that prayer recognizes is that even in our repentance and even in our tears for our sin, even in all of these things, there is not one speck of righteousness that can be added to Christ for the hope of heaven. 
We need Christ's righteousness in Christ alone. So what is the blessing in being poor in spirit? Do you see it? It is the gift of a regenerate heart that sees God for who he is and has been enabled in the power of the Holy Spirit to rely, to respond to the law in our condemnation and to the gospel in the free offer of salvation. And we have come to rest in Christ as we receive him by faith. Is there any greater blessing than that? Can you understand now the logic of the Beatitudes, why this is the entry point to the rest? It's the first domino that has to fall if we're going to consider the others. That that poor in spirit is the ongoing posture of the regenerate heart. That apart from Christ, I am nothing. That apart from Christ, who am I? That apart from Christ, woe is me. Christ is everything. That's why the first beatitude is the front door to the kingdom of heaven. Because only the poor in spirit know that their only hope for heaven is the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith. And that's our hope.